Welcome listeners, but take heed. We will say whatever we need to share our knowledge, thoughts, and joy, and even things that do annoy. So join us now, but be aware. We have a tendency to swear. We'll dial it back a little bit. But frankly, we don't give a shit. Welcome to Just Keep Rolling, a Harry Potter book movie compare and contrast podcast. I'm Ellen, my co-host is Katie, and we hope you are ready for the fourth story. Oh my god, are we really starting out with number puns? This is going to be a long book, y'all. I'm just trying to get them fired up. Oh my god, and with that, let's just keep rolling right into our rolling rehash. Last week, we compared the American and British versions of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and officially finished the third story. Hagrid's hairy homicidal hardback had nothing on Harry's very hairy hairy hair. Aunt Marge's shit-talking had nothing on teen anger management issues. Uber had nothing on the night bus if you're looking to get somewhere fast with little consideration for your own safety. The musical stylings of the Sorting Hat had nothing on the Richard Harris Memorial Toad Choir. Cheech and Chong had nothing on Dumbledore. Hermione's attitude had nothing on Professor Trelawney's self-confidence. Draco's terrible insults had nothing on the steel talons of a pissed-off horsey bird. My Worst Nightmares had nothing on Pravati's ridiculous boggart. Actual competent gatekeeping had nothing on Sir Cadagan's enthusiasm. Crazy Madam Hooch had nothing on Crazy Gary Oldman. Professor Snape's thirst for revenge had nothing on Boggart Snape's sense of fashion. Movie Ron's cowardice had nothing on Book Ron's bravery, or his pig-headedness for that matter. Personal grooming and hygiene had nothing on Wormtail. Like, literally, nothing. Explaining the Marauder's map had nothing on just glossing over the entire subject. Lupin's amazing teaching abilities had nothing on his furry little problem when it came to parents' comfort levels. A surprise end-of-the-year broomstick from a loving godfather had nothing on a surprise possible murder broom from an escaped convict. And... Although it is our favorite of the series, the movie just had nothing on the book. During episode 63, Herring After Harry, we had two Potter ponderings. One was just to find out your favorite moments of our episodes covering Prisoner of Azkaban. Carly said, oh god, this one is so good. You guys did a great job with everything. The fucking tree puns killed me. She said, in particular, her favorite part was getting to record her Marauders episode with us, if that counts. I'd say it does. Same here. Quincy said his favorite part was that he made us crowbar calling Pettigrew a rat bastard into an episode. And he also didn't say this, but I am 98% certain that Quincy's actual favorite part is anytime we say Quincy's name on an episode. We love you, Quincy. <laughs> Hi, Quincy. <laughs> Mike said his favorite part from Prisoner of Azkaban was definitely all the puns. He said we had great puns from the first two as well, but he feels like the quantity went up and the quality went down, which is a good thing because bad puns are where it's at. Juliana said, crazy Gary Oldman. <laughs> I am going to miss saying that every episode. I have I'm going to gonna miss hearing you say that in your sexy voice. <laughs> as, you know what? Next time I get sick, I'll call you up just to say Crazy Gary Old. Yes! <laughs> Jackson said his favorite was definitely the made-up names and words, like Birdering Tree and Horsey Bird. Horsey Bird! I love Horsey Bird. The other was to get your thoughts on how Sirius was able to access his money via letter to buy Harry a broom. How do you think that system works? 
Carly figures he still had access to his money in jail, since there's still a black family vault. So she assumes he could easily have written and the goblins not think two things about it, since goblins don't really give a fuck about wizard affairs. Unless, of course, it involves goblin jewelry or weapons. Mike said that he thinks he went to Gringotts as a dog with his key, but he's not actually sure if that's canon or headcanon. I reminded him what the book said about sending the order in under Harry's name, but asking them to take the money from his vault, and we decided that was boring. His is better, so headcanon accepted. <laughs> Jackson thinks that Sirius simply filled in an order form and wrote down which vault to access it from. Goblins don't really involve themselves in wizard affairs, so he doubts they would care that Sirius was out of prison. That's also not very safe, though. Like, anyone could use your name, couldn't they? That's kind of what I was saying in the episode, that it would be like using it like a charge card. So it's probably yeah. no different than somebody getting a hold of your charge card. I mean, what proof do you have of actual ownership of that vault? Maybe they have like code words that go along with it, too. Maybe, like a pin number? Yeah. <laughs> a wizarding pin number? Mm-hmm. But thank you for your responses. We love reading them. We do. And we love hearing all about the things that you love about us, so that helps. Yeah. Right? I was kind of hoping for more, but... <laughs> maybe at the end of this book we got some pretty good ones we really did i love you guys because we have amazing keepers and they're awesome our trivia question last week was what was the name of the village pub in little hangleton the village pub is known as the hanged man and it's where everyone in town gathered to discuss the murders of the three riddles congratulations goes to mike riley who was the first person to answer it correctly even though it took him three posts to get the whole answer right. <laughs> he got it there in the end and is officially on a three-week streak. We also want to give him a shout-out for joining us as our newest Order of Merlin first-class patron! So exciting! <laughs> right? Thanks for joining our patron family. We are so happy to have you with us and really look forward to getting to know you better in our chat group and whatnot. It's all about the whatnot. Isn't it, though? <laughs> really is. For now, let's just keep rolling into chapter one of The Goblet of Fire, The Riddle House, and the semi-corresponding film scenes. Chapter one, The Riddle House. On a hill overlooking the village of Little Hangleton stands the dilapidated and ramshackle house that was once a beautiful manor. Though this building has been unoccupied for years, the villagers still call it The Riddle House, when they talk about the strange and horrible events that happened there half a century ago. The truths of the story are unclear anymore, but the beginning of each version of the story starts out the same. Fifty years ago, a maid found all three riddles dead in their drawing room, eyes open and still in their dinner clothes. She ran into town waking as many people as possible and summoning the police to the house. The residents of Little Hangleton were curious and excited, but not sad because the riddles were not well liked by the villagers, since the parents were snobby and rude and their adult son, Tom, was even worse. Though not upset about their deaths, the little Hangletons did worry about how they died, since three perfectly healthy people don't just drop dead simultaneously. Everyone was at the local pub, the Hanged Man, discussing the murders when the riddles cook arrives to tell them that their gardener, Frank Bryce, had been arrested for their murders. A woman at the bar tried to defend him by saying he had a hard war and just wanted quiet, but the cook asked who else has a key to the back door. There were no signs of a break-in, and all Frank had to do was sneak in while they were sleeping. 
The other people at the bar began agreeing that Frank Bryce was, indeed, a funny man and had a nasty look about him. And by morning, the villagers had hardly a doubt that Frank was the murderer. Frank, however, was adamant about his innocence and proclaimed that the only person he had seen near the house was a young, dark-haired and pale teenage boy. Nobody else had seen this boy and Frank's prospects were looking quite grim until a report came back on the Riddle's bodies. They had not been, as far as the doctors could tell, harmed in any way and seemed completely healthy aside from their being dead. With no evidence of foul play, Frank was released and returned to his cottage. The villagers were still suspicious of him, and though some of them thought he should leave, he remained the gardener for the next families who lived there, but neither of them stayed long and the house began to fall into disrepair. These days, the Riddle House is owned by a man who does not live there, but continues to pay Frank, who is nearly 77 years old and struggling to keep up with the weeds. Boys from the village break into the Riddle House on dares, and Frank believes that this is because the parents and grandparents of these kids still believe he murdered the Riddles. One night, Frank's stiff leg wakes him up and he notices the lights are on in the upper window of the Riddle House. He thinks it's the village boys breaking in again, picks up his walking stick and key to the house, and quietly lets himself in, listening for footsteps or voices. Frank makes his way up the stairs, and when he reaches the landing, he sees a flickering light through a door that is ajar. He hears a timid voice offering a bottle to his lord if he's hungry, and the high-pitched and cold voice that responds makes Frank's hairs stand on end. The second voice tells the first, who he calls Wormtail, to move him closer to the fire, and Frank glimpses a small man in a black cloak pushing a chair into place. The second voice asks where Nagini is, and the man called Wormtail says she's gone to explore the house. The second voice says they will milk her before they retire. He will need feeding since the journey has tired him. Frank leans closer to the door and hears Wormtail ask how long they are going to stay there. The second voice saying a week, maybe longer, and mentions it would be foolish to act before the Quidditch World Cup is over. Wormtail asks why, and Frank is confused and tries to clean out his ears because Quidditch isn't a real word. The second voice explains to the first that the Ministry of Magic will be keeping very tight security, making sure the muggles don't notice anything. Frank gives up trying to clear out his ears since the two in the room seem to be talking in code, and must either be spies or criminals. The conversation continues with the second voice telling Wormtail he's still determined, and Wormtail saying that it could be done without Harry Potter insisting that he can disguise himself and be back in a day or two with a suitable person. The second voice asks Wormtail if his suggestion is an attempt to desert him. The first man denies this, and the second cold voice accuses him of lying and says that he's revolted by Wormtail, that his devotion is cowardice, and he's only there because he has nowhere else to go. He says he would be robbed of the little health he has gained if Wormtail were to leave for a day or two and silences the other man as he tries to respond. The cold man says he has his reasons for using the boy and that a few more months makes no difference after waiting 13 years. Wormtail points out that Bertha Jorkin's disappearance will not go unnoticed and starts talking about murdering someone else when the cold voice interrupts him again. He tells him that the ministry doesn't need to know that anyone else has died, that he cannot do it himself in his current condition, and that with one more death the way to Harry Potter will be clear and by then his faithful servant will have returned. Wormtail insists that he is faithful, but the cold voice tells him that he has neither the brains nor the loyalty to be so. 
Wormtail argues in the cold voice concedes that he had a stroke of brilliance in bringing him Bertha Jorkins, even if he had no idea how useful she would be when he caught her, and says that he will be rewarded by being allowed to perform a task that any of his followers would give their right hand to do. Wormtail asks what this task is, and is told that his part will come at the end, and that he will be as useful as Bertha Jorkins was. Wormtail worries that he's going to be killed too, and then mutters something that Frank cannot hear, which makes the cold voice laugh a mirthless laugh, and points out that memory charms can be broken by powerful wizards, which he proved when he questioned her. In the hall, Frank starts sweating, realizing that the man was talking about killing a woman, and not only showed no remorse, but seemed to be amused by it. The madman was plotting more murders, and the boy that had been mentioned, Harry Potter, was not safe. He decides he must sneak back out of the house and contact the police, but remains frozen in the hall when the voice begins speaking again. Frank overhears bits and pieces about a faithful servant at Hogwarts, Harry Potter as good as his, and that he thinks he hears Nagini. The cold voice changes into hissing, spitting sounds, and Frank hears movement behind him. He turns to look and is paralyzed with fear as a massive 12 feet long snake is slithering towards him and goes right past him. The hissing continues and Frank has the impossible thought that the man can talk to snakes. As he stands frozen in his spot, the cold voice begins speaking English again, saying that according to Nagini, there's an old muggle man outside the door listening in on their conversation. The door swings open wide and Frank is face to face with the short man he saw moving the chair. He cannot see who's in the chair in front of the fire, but he sees the giant snake curled up on the rug and the small man leads Frank into the room. The voice from the chair asks Frank if he heard everything he had said, but calls him a muggle. Frank asks what that word is, and the voice tells him that it means he's not a wizard. He replies that he doesn't know what he means by wizard, but he heard enough to go to the police to tell them that they had murdered and were plotting to murder again, adding on that his wife knows he's in the house. The voice from the chair cuts him off, saying that he has no wife. He told nobody he was coming, that a muggle cannot lie to Lord Voldemort because he always knows. Frank tells the voice he doesn't like his manners and he should face him like a man. The cold voice says that he's not a man, but that he will face him and instructs Wormtail to turn his chair around. Wormtail hesitantly and reluctantly approaches the chair as the snake lifts its head and hisses. The chair is now facing Frank, who drops his walking stick to the floor and screams so loudly he does not hear what the thing in the chair says as it raises a wand. There's a blast of green light, and Frank Bryce drops dead to the ground. 200 miles away, the boy called Harry Potter wakes with a start. The movie opens on the Warner Brothers logo and zooms in through it, panning down a wall of skulls to an opening that a snake slithers out of. The camera follows the snake through the grass, into an area surrounded by old gravestones, and up past a statue of death holding a scythe over its head. As the camera glides over the statue's skeletal face into the dark sky, the words Harry Potter become visible. As the music intensifies, and the goblet of fire appears beneath it. And the camera zooms in on the words before going back to the dark sky, then transitioning to a single light on in a cottage with a mansion off in the distance. It then cuts to a match being lit over a stove and an old man moving a kettle onto it and adding tea bags to a teapot. He looks out his window and sees a light on in one of the upstairs windows of the nearby mansion. He throws down the tea bags and grumbles about bloody kids before grabbing keys off of a hook and making his way across the grounds with a flashlight. 
He makes his way up the stairs and enters the house, shining his light around and revealing the old and cobwebbed covered grandfather clock and woodwork. As he heads up the stairs, he hears a cold voice speaking to someone called Wormtail, asking if the task of nursing him has become wearisome. The old man steps on a creaky step and hesitates as Wormtail responds to the cold voice, assuring his lord that he was only suggesting doing it without the boy. The cold voice insists that the boy is everything and it can't be done without him. As the old man continues to approach the room, another man kneels down next to the chair the cold voice is coming from and promises that he will not disappoint him. The cold voice acknowledges that is good and then instructs the kneeling man to first gather their old comrades by sending a sign. A giant snake slithers up the stairs and past the old man, entering the room and communicating through a hissed language. The cold voice shares that Nagini tells him that the old muggle caretaker is standing just outside the door. Wormtail's figure fills the doorway, startling the old man until the cold voice continues, asking him to step aside so he can give him a proper greeting. Wormtail steps to the side as the cold voice says, Avada Kedavra! With a flash of green light, the man raises his hands in the air and the camera cuts to the tea kettle whistling and steaming on the stove, and then to Harry Potter, asleep but reacting to a nightmare. So the book and the movie essentially start out the same way? Essentially. Essentially. Keyword. Yeah. The book chapter starts out with all of the background information about the riddles and their mysterious deaths, and the movie skips over all of that. <laughs> Yeah, basically picks up a few pages into the book chapter and never gives us any background information at all. Without reading the book, we don't know who exactly is involved and where the scene takes place. But the book lets us know that it takes place in the village of Little Hangleton, with the focus on a once fine manor, still known as the Riddle House, despite the fact that it had long been unoccupied by the Riddles, who was an elderly couple and their grown-up son, Tom, who had died there 50 years before. True story. Honestly, the first time I read this chapter, I was so confused because I didn't realize the Tom Riddle who was killed was Voldy's dad. Spoilers! It took me longer than I'd like to admit to figure out what was going on, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> like, I just kept thinking, wait, Voldy's an orphan. Why is he in a house with his parents? Wait, he died? Voldemort didn't die here. What the fuck is going on? It was very confusing to me. I can't remember if I was initially confused or not. But I do remember immediately realizing upon reading that the dark-haired, pale teenage boy that Frank said he saw near the house was Tom Riddle, a.k.a. Voldy. And I knew that that was who killed him. But we'll get to that. Yeah. But yeah, in the book, we learned that 50 years ago, the maid entered the drawing room one morning to find all three Riddles dead, still in their dinner things. The police were summoned and the entire town was abuzz with the mystery. Not because they were at all upset by their deaths, since the riddles were rather unliked for being snobbish and rude, but because three apparently healthy people just don't drop dead all in one night. They just don't. It's quite a riddle. <laughs> it's quite a riddle. <laughs> the villagers all met up at the village pub, the hanged man, that night to discuss the murders. Which was our trivia question. Interesting name for a pub. Yeah, I imagine it's, like, based off of the fact that it's Little Hangleton. Oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> it's still kind of odd that you go to the Hanged Man. Like, Yeah. Morbid much? But while they're hanging out there, talking about the riddle that is the riddle's death, <laughs> the riddle's cook shows up and dramatically announces that Frank Bryce had just been arrested. 
Now, Frank Bryce came back from the war with a stiff leg and a dislike for crowds and loud noises and worked as the Riddle's gardener ever since. So the villagers were initially surprised by this news. But by the end of the conversation, basically everybody was convinced that Frank was guilty. Gossip really is the worst when it comes to things like this. Right? Mm-hmm. Poor Frank. The entire time he kept insisting that he was innocent, and he also said that the only person he saw near the house on the day of the Riddle's deaths had been a teenage boy, a stranger, dark-haired, and pale. So this is when I read that, and I immediately realized that that had to be teenage Voldy, considering that we knew his real name was Tom Riddle, mm-hmm. and the son was Tom Riddle, the grown-up son. Yeah. And the house was called the Riddle House. I'm like, there is definitely a connection here. Yeah. Once I figured everything out, it made sense to me. I was also just very confused, too, by the fact that this is the first scene, essentially, that we see that's not from Harry's perspective. Like, it is because it's his dream, but we don't know that yet. Right. It's the first scene that starts away from Privet Drive. Yeah. It was very confusing to me. I was like, did I pick up the right book? Or... Like, what happened here? Like... Did they put the end at the beginning of this? I don't know what's going on. I got very, very confused. I may have also been high. I don't know. (laughs) Could be a thing. (laughs) I was 19. What are you going to do? But anyway, the report on the Riddle's bodies came back, and it was a team of doctors that ended up concluding that the Riddles hadn't been poisoned, stabbed, shot, strangled, suffocated, or harmed at all. They appeared to be in perfect health, just dead. The only noteworthy thing they could find was a look of terror on each of their faces, but being frightened to death wasn't really a thing. And if it was, it likely would be like the fright caused a heart attack, and that would be what killed them. I'm assuming they also didn't show any signs of heart damage. Yeah, probably not, since they appeared perfectly healthy, and it would be super suspicious for three people to die of a heart attack all at once, too. True, yeah. It's kind of interesting to think how the killing curse must work then, if it doesn't leave any obvious traces. Bam! Magic! Bam! Dead! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But the police had to let Frank go since there wasn't any evidence that the Riddles were murdered, and the rest of the gossipy town was surprised and suspicious of the fact that he decided to return to his cottage on the Riddle House grounds. They still figured he was guilty and thought that he should move on, But he stayed to tend the garden for the next families that lived there, though neither stayed long, and the house started to fall into disrepair. This right here is basically where the movie picks up the story, with the present-day portion involving Frank Bryce, although we never actually hear that his name is Frank Bryce. Yeah, it also cuts out the detail that the Riddle House is presently owned by a wealthy man for unclear tax reasons, and he continued to pay Frank to do the gardening... And this tidbit of information has always made me wonder who that wealthy man was. Is he a wizard? Is he connected to Voldemort in some way? Hmm. Interesting. I never really thought about that. But yeah, now I really want to know. So thanks for putting that in my head. Appreciate it. I think this should be our Potter pondering. Because I want to know if our keepers have theories about this. Part of me kind of wants to think that maybe it was Dumbledore. I was just thinking that. I was just thinking that as you were saying it. It's pretty kind to continue paying an old man to basically do nothing. I mean, I'm sure he tried to garden, but he was getting old and had a bad leg. But like somebody, it was somebody that was kind enough to continue paying 
some random old man. He had to be personally involved somehow, like, yeah, like in somehow. some way. Yeah. So I want I want some theories on this, guys. Have That's, some fun with that. I had never thought about that, but thank you. Because now I'm not going to be able to sleep. Awesome. <laughs> Good. Stay up. Work on the rehash. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> so none of that happened in the movie, though. Though it does still set up where the film starts in. With the usual WB intro, we're already looking at a much darker tone for this movie, since even in Prisoner of Azkaban, it at least started out with some lighthearted magic. Like, there's no magic here, just a creepy-ass nope rope in a cemetery. Yeah, as we've mentioned in some other episodes, the first movie started out with the BAM magic, and the second movie started out with illegal magic. Mm-hmm. This one is just eerie, and even the music reflects that. Yeah, it still has the elements of the original theme song, but it has definitely taken a turn for the terrifying. I talked to Max about it, and he said it was more dramatic because it included the film's graveyard theme, which is what turns up every time something suspicious or creepy happens. He described it as atmospherically macabre. Atmospherically macabre is perfect to describe the entire start of the film, honestly. Because along with the music, you got the creepy-ass nope rope slithering through a graveyard and past a statue of death. That's a big-ass statue of death, too. Pretty macabre. Pretty fucking macabre. (laughs) It then transitions to the sky with the words Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, and this is where the original theme song is incorporated. Yeah, Max was saying that the original Harry Potter theme starts in a minor key, which is typically what gives something a creepier sound. In this case, it probably helped with the whole magical aspect of the music. Yeah. But he said that he would describe the original theme as incorporated diminishing. According to him, they made the minor a bit less minor, and in doing that, they made it super creepy. So now we're getting chills at this point because it's super creepy. And chills because it's Harry Potter. It's joint chills. (laughs) The title in the sky, the macabre atmosphere, the music... Do, 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 do. Woo. Do it again. Do, 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 do. <laughs> but anyways, after the title screen, it cuts to a scene with a light on in a little cottage and a large mansion in the background. And we can presume this is the Riddle House and Frank's cottage that is mentioned in the book. However, they never actually tell us that. Yeah, it just cuts to a scene with an old man. Presumably Frank presumably frank yeah putting a kettle on the stove i remember a lot of people mainly brits complaining that frank didn't use an electric kettle since even in the 90s everyone apparently used an electric kettle but i think this may have been done to show that frank was old school or to maybe just make it seem more charming to the americans since most of us equate britishness with teapots on the stove i think it's because frank is old school he doesn't like crowds or loud noises Dude never went out and bought himself a new kettle. He just kept using the same old one he always had. Mm, True. Especially not after the entire town thought he was a murderer. Yeah. Poor Frank. He had a hard war. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway, he's making the tea and looks out the window to see a light on up at the mansion. Presumably the Riddle House. Yeah, yeah, presumably the Riddle House. But he mutters something about bloody kids and grabs some keys and makes his way across the grounds. So this keeps it somewhat in line with this section of the book chapter. Frank's bad leg woke him up, so he headed downstairs to fill his kettle. However, it wasn't to make tea, it was to refill his hot water bottle. But he looks out his window and sees a light on in the riddle house. 
It's nice that the movie had him grumble about the bloody kids because the book had him assume it was the boys from town that they mentioned liking to get on the grounds and break into the house to mess with him. Yeah, that was the closest thing we got to any backstory there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But Frank enters the house, and what I want to know is the shrubbery is so perfectly kept and trimmed, but they don't have anyone to dust the inside of the house. Frank was probably the only person willing to stay on, and he was paid the garden. So perfect shrubs, dusty house. Those fuckers were taller than him, though. Like, how did he get, like, perfect squares on the goddamn shrubs? Well, honestly, the book kind of implied that the lawn wasn't looking that great either, since Frank was getting old, and he was having a hard time keeping up with the weeds, and those bloody kids would do shit like ride their bicycles over the lawn. He would have had a nice lawn if it wasn't for those meddling kids. Meddling kids? Harry, Ron, and Hermione aren't in this scene. Oh, yeah, my mistake. He would have had a nice lawn if it weren't for those bloody kids. (laughs) But I think the movie did a good job bringing the visual aspects of this part to life, with the super dusty house and him heading up the stairs and seeing the open door from the landing. But then, there are a few differences from here. (laughs) Yeah, the two sections get the same point across, but there's one very noticeable difference between them both. In the book, Frank hears a timid and fearful man's voice tell his lord that there's more in the bottle if he's still hungry. A second, high-pitched and cold voice tells him, later, and asks to be moved closer to the fire. In the movie, a cold voice is asking Wormtail if he is growing weary of nursing him, and Wormtail responds that he was only suggesting doing it without the boy. I'm not gonna lie, I don't care if I am the groundskeeper. The second I hear grown-ass voices, I'm getting the fuck out. Like, it was one thing when he just thought it was kids, but once he knows that it wasn't, he should have hightailed it out of there. To be fair, he was a soldier. Meh. Not likely the hightailing type. Meh. Plus, in the book, he got to hear words like Quidditch, Ministry of Magic, Wizards, and Muggles. I'd probably hang around and listen in too. So, I mean, then I'm just thinking it's crackheads. Like, <laughs> or somebody who's just high off their nut. Then I'm especially running, dude. Right, but it's like a train wreck. Nah. You can't look away. Uh, If they're crackheads? I don't know, I'm out. Cheaper than cable. (laughs) But Frank's old school. He doesn't need cable or crackheads. Or electric tea kettles, apparently. Or or electric tea kettles. (laughs) Anyway. The cold voice insists that the boy... Presumably Harry Potter. Presumably Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Is everything, and it can't be done without him. This reflects the book well enough, which actually has Wormtail specifically say it could be done without Harry Potter. However, it significantly streamlined things because the cold voice assumes Wormtail is expressing concern for Harry Potter, and Wormtail insists that they could use another wizard and it could be done much more quickly. This also brings up a parallel to the film, because he then assumes that the task of nursing him has become wearisome. And the suggestion of abandoning the plan could be nothing more than an attempt to desert him. Which is very similar to what Frank overheard in the movie, though definitely streamlined. Yeah. And then in the book, Frank hears the cold voice doubt Wormtail's devotion, calling it nothing more than cowardice, and reminding him as to why he wants to use the boy. He says he waited 13 years and a few more months will make no difference. Then, the murder of a woman named Bertha Jorkins comes up in the conversation, as well as another planned murder and the return of his 
faithful servant. This is where the book and the movie section are the most different, because they aren't waiting for the return of the faithful servant. As Frank creeps closer to the room to continue listening in, another man kneels down next to the chair the cold voice is coming from, and promises that he won't disappoint him. The voice says that's good, and then instructs the kneeling man to first gather their old comrades by sending them a sign. Yeah, they just bypassed the return of the faithful servant and inserted him into this scene. And to be mm-hmm. honest, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about him being there. Not just because that's not how it happened in the book, but also because I feel like it kind of destroyed a lot of the suspense from the book. Yeah, it definitely took away a lot, I think. But sometimes I wonder how it would have translated if he hadn't been there. Like, would we have had any idea that it could be someone else? Like, we know how much the movie cuts out. Yeah, this is definitely something we'll end up talking more about as we go through. Yeah, we'll talk about it a lot. A lot, a lot. <laughs> there is a lot to be said. Mm-hmm. But in the book, Wormtail is adamant that he is a faithful servant, and the cold voice insults his intelligence. I mean, he's not wrong. Uh, facts. <laughs> As their conversation goes on, it becomes very clear to Frank that the man with the cold voice was talking about a woman he had murdered, with amusement, and he was planning more murders. He felt like he needed to go to the police, but instead remained frozen to the spot, still listening in. I mean, seriously. He's listening in to grown-ass men talking about murdering people. I'm telling you, he should have hightailed it right the hell out of there. But at this point, in both the book and the movie, the giant-ass nope rope slithers right past Frank, and he should have fucked off even harder once he saw that giant snake. Because I know I would have. Damn sure. Yeah, the book described him as being paralyzed with fright. And even if he did run, I'm not sure how far he would have gotten with a bum leg. Still, you gotta try. Ugh. I'm telling you, I could run on fucking water if that fucking snake came near me. So there's that. I'm just saying. <laughs> the snake reports to the man with the cold voice that the old muggle caretaker is standing just outside the door. And can we just take a moment of David Tennant appreciation? Because... Oh, like Homer Simpson drool. Just, right? Oh. Oh, David Tennant. That's genuinely part of the reason why I can't fully determine how I feel about them adding his character to this scene. Because I'm all for more David Tennant screen time, but at the same time, it kills the suspense. But David Tennant! But suspense! But David Tennant! Conundrum! <laughs> Conundrum indeed. And a little bit of extra drool. Homer Simpson noise. Forbidden David Tennant. (laughs) But Wormtail really kills my lady boner, though. Like, he pops out of that room like the human equivalent of an ice-cold shower or like a graphic picture of genital warts or something. Everything just shriveled up down there, yep. Shrinkage. (laughs) Awkward. Seriously. The movie veers away from the book again a bit at this point because in the book, the cold voice tells Wormtail to invite him in, and he actually takes some time to talk to Frank, asking, You heard everything, Muggle? Frank defiantly asks what he's calling him and learns that it means he's not a wizard. He still has no idea what the voice is talking about, but informs him that he heard enough to interest the police. He also adds on that his wife knows he's there, but before he can continue the lie, 
the cold voice tells him not to lie to Lord Voldemort. Oh, shit! The cold voice was Lord Voldemort? Presumably. <laughs> Frank retorts that he doesn't think much of his manners and demands that he turns around and face him like a man. Voldemort explains that he's not a man, he's so much more, but asks Wormtail to turn his chair around. Once the chair was facing Frank, he dropped his walking stick and began to scream so loudly that he never heard the words the thing in the chair spoke as it raised a wand. There was a flash of green light, a rushing sound, and Frank Bryce was dead before he hit the ground. But otherwise apparently healthy. Presumably. But yeah. In the movie, the cold voice... Presumably Voldemort. Presumably Voldemort. Just tells Wormtail to step aside and immediately kills him with Avada Kedavra in a flash of green light. The camera cuts to the whistling tea kettle as Frank screams and dies, and then to Harry Potter, who is tossing and turning in bed. And this is where we cut off the movie scene, because it lines up pretty well with the end of the book chapter, which says, 200 miles away, the boy called Harry Potter woke with a start. Bam! End chapter one. And since we're starting a new book and movie, we get to start talking about first appearances by the actors again. Yay! Yep. And the first actor we see in this movie section was Eric Sykes as presumably Frank Bryce. <sighs> presumably. Presumably. I gotta say, he is exactly how I imagined Frank Bryce. Yeah. I kind of wish he had more to do. Right? Because... Here we are introducing this new actor, and we're saying goodbye to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello and goodbye. But yeah, no, he. I thought he was great. He totally fit, like, cantankerous old man living alone on the grounds. You know, like, yeah. he very much fit that. <laughs> it was just exactly what I pictured. Mm -hmm. Worked well. Yeah. We also see Timothy Spall return as Peter Pettigrew, a.k.a. Wormtail. And aside from killing my lady boner... He's awesome, as usual. Yeah, he's very rat-like. Yep. He does very well. Like, I mean, I'd be mad that he kills my lady boner, but that's kind of his job. Right. Like. I mean, that's his job and he does it well. He does it it's very well. It's just unfortunate yeah. for your lady boner. <laughs> it's it. It really is. How many times can we fit lady boner into this episode? <laughs> oh, at least once more. I say anytime we talk about David Tennant, I have to talk about my lady boner. Yep. So there's that. No. Yeah. So, like I said. Speaking of. Speaking of, as previously mentioned, we saw David Tennant. <sighs> lady boner. <laughs> as, well, we know he's Barty Crouch Jr., but I feel like we aren't really supposed to know that at this point. Mm -hmm. Which is part of the reason why I feel like it takes away from the suspense. But it's David fucking Tennant. <laughs> David fucking Tennant. <sighs> <sighs> yeah, we'll be talking about him a lot more as time goes on. Because, well, David fucking Tennant. Right. So there's that. We're not going to miss an opportunity to talk about him. No. Or your lady boner, apparently. Right? I will never miss an opportunity to mention my lady boner or David Tennant. Or both, as the case will probably be. Yep. Get used <laughs> to it, folks. Can't have one without the other. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we also heard from Voldemort. Presumably Voldemort. Uh-huh. Presumably. 
But since we don't actually see him yet, we're going to hold off on talking about him. In the same with Harry Potter. We'll save that for the next episode when he actually does a bit more than sleeps fitfully. But not much. <laughs> His hair did steal the scene. It usually does. We're going to get to that. <laughs> this will bring us to our Potter pondering. Who do you think the man was who owned the Riddle House? Do you think he was connected to Voldemort? Find the post on our Facebook page and let us know what you think. We really look forward to reading them. And this will bring us to our Sorting Hat story, which is from Diana Elizabeth. She writes... I was really young when the first movie came out, but old enough to already be an avid reader. My older sister had already started the series, but the books hadn't been passed on to me yet, as they weren't sure if I was old enough to really get the story. When the first movie came out, my mom had gotten her and my sister tickets to see it, but my sister got grounded. So as her punishment, my mom took me instead. <laughs> Yay! I remember walking into the theater room and they had replaced the number with a Privet Drive street sign. And from the moment I saw that... I was hooked. As soon as I got home from the movie, I insisted on getting my hands on the books. I already knew movie versions were nothing compared to the books, and I needed to know what really happens. It took some convincing to make my mom and sister see that I was old enough to appreciate them, but they caved. From that moment on, my sister and I tore through every book we could and just read and reread and spent all of our time discussing everything Harry Potter. Thank you for sharing your Sorting Hat story with us, Diana. Yes, thank you. Sounds a lot like me and Ellen on most days. Right? <laughs> yeah, you're like the sister I never had. Aww, shucks. I have a sister, but you're like another one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the sister you already had. <laughs> <laughs> no, she doesn't like Harry Potter. So yeah, you are like the sister I never had. Way yeah. to go. Woohoo. If any of you other keepers out there listening would like us to read your Sorting Hat story on a future episode, you can email it to us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com. Let us know your house, wand, Patronus, how you got into Harry Potter, and anything else you might want to share with us. You can also just message us on social media. And this will bring us to this week's trivia question. What did Dudley chuck out the window after he got in trouble for cheating on his diet? The prize for the first one who responds with a correct answer and the code word, hashtag bit stupid really, will get a sticker. Another way to get a sticker is to rate and review us through iTunes. If you don't have an Apple account, you can write a recommendation on our Facebook page. Then email us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com to let us know you did, and we'll get back to you to figure out which sticker you want and where to send it. Don't forget to find us and follow us on Facebook at JKR Podcast and Twitter and Instagram at Just Keep Rolling. Following us on Podbean at justkeeprolling.podbean.com will get you the episode as early as possible and give you a leg up in answering the trivia question. If you would like to support us as a patron for extra perks, you can go to patreon.com slash justkeeprolling. In addition to getting you some extra perks, like Just Keep Rolling swag, patron-only Facebook groups, virtual meetups, bonus content, and more... Your patronage also helps us to continue producing this podcast, our cooking show, and to bring you more content. As always, any support you can give is greatly appreciated. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we post our weekly podcast episodes, cooking show episodes, monthly blooper reels, vlogs, and other random videos. And join us next week when we talk about chapters two and three because there are no corresponding film scenes. Thanks for listening. We hope you hear us again. I'm Katie. I'm Ellen. Until the next time, just, just keep, keep rolling. rolling.